From Square Two, this is What's Wrong With Revenue. I'm Mike Lieberman, CEO at Square Two, and along with my longtime friend, Eric Kalis, and co-founder at Square Two and six-time entrepreneur, Eric and I will answer the question CEOs have every single day, what's wrong with revenue? You can be part of the Livecast show where we'll answer your questions every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, or catch the show on demand on YouTube and on all your favorite podcast networks. Also check out all our audio and video content on Square2 Plus at the square2marketing.com website. Enjoy the show. Hey everybody, Mike Lieberman, CEO at Square2 with Eric Kalis. Eric, how you doing today? If I was any better, I'd be twins. I like your new office there. You got like a very uh, like a studious looking uh, abode there for you to represent. Nice job. We are very studious here at Square Two. Good, good. Today, we got a great show planned for everybody. What's wrong with revenue is going to answer the question, how to go from 10% close rate to an 80% close rate. It's a really hot topic. It's one that we're very excited to bring with you today. Uh, to cover off my uh, traditional preliminary comments, if you want to check out the show, go to our website, square2marketing.com. At the bottom, there's a link to What's Wrong with Revenue. You can click on it and get access to every single show we've had. This is show number 20. It's a very exciting milestone in the show's uh, life cycle. You can also subscribe to the show, which means we will send you updates on upcoming shows and the on-demand show after we're done recording it. You'll get those on Thursdays. You can also hop in and ask us questions of which we will handle on the show live. And then you can hear your question when you catch the recording. You can also check out our show on YouTube. Please subscribe to it, like it, and give us comments. I've answered a couple of comments recently, and I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And you can also check out our show on all of your favorite podcast platforms, Podbean, Stitcher, Apple, iTunes, and there's probably a couple others in there as well. So if you're into podcasts instead of video shows, you know how to get in touch with us. Today, we have a really exciting topic, like I said, how to go from a 10% close rate to an 80% close rate. And if you're looking to improve revenue, which obviously, why would you be listening to this if revenue isn't an issue for you, you might actually do it fastest by looking at your sales process, checking out that close rate on submitted proposals, and really trying to improve that. You might not know this or not, but even if you have a 10% close rate, if you can double that to 20%, you'll double your revenue. And it's pretty fantastic that a small move like that can actually double revenue. But it's true. If you took that to 40%, well, obviously, you'd be killing it. And in this episode, we're going to talk about in detail about clients who came to us with a very low close rate, how we upgraded their close rate, some new initiatives that helped them turn their close rate uh, up and to the right. And we'll talk about some sales process improvements that changed the trajectory of their business. Uh, we're going to cover some topics like how to investigate your late stage sales process to uncover issues that might be hurting your close rate, how you can arm sales reps with the right sales process that will guarantee you improve your close rate. We're also going to be talking about why you need to think differently about the way you work with prospects. It's not always about winning. Sometimes it's about helping them and guiding them. And we'll talk a little bit about how you can train reps to execute the end of the sales process to make signing an inevitability and last but not least, we'll talk a little bit about metrics because everybody knows Eric loves metrics. How do we measure your opportunities to know when the prospects are ready to get a proposal that is going to close? And we have a couple of really good examples of real clients that we worked with over the years to help them with their close rates. So Eric, anything you want to add to get us started here today? No, one, one quick comment. You know, um, I usually take the first call for clients or prospective clients that are looking to work with Square Two. And 99 out of 100 uh, usually share that they want more leads. But in today's episode, we're going to hopefully move people out of their, their comfort zone that it's not about leads, it's about closed deals. If I could get five uh, leads a month as opposed to 500, but close all five, what's the difference? Let's work more profit. Great point. And that's really what we're going to be talking about today. You don't always need more leads. Sometimes you need to be better with the leads that you have. So let's dig into this. So how would you go about looking at a sales organization's current performance to uncover issues that might be hurting 
the close rate. I'm sure you have some comments about this, Eric. You spent a lot of time on our sales process. How do you go about investigating what's going on late stage sales process? Sure. So I think that companies, for the most part, don't do a great job of tracking. So the first step is let's get a little data. Let's break the end of journey into a couple of steps, right? One is how many leads are we getting from the marketing efforts? That's a big number that we have to look at. We'll call that SQ. And then how many of those SQLs, as we engage with them in the sales process, actually turn into viable sales opportunities? That's the second metric that we should look at. And then how many of those sales opportunities got down to the proposal stage? Because there could be some talking about it and people stall or they postpone their purchase. But how many actually said, yes, yeah, send me an agreement? And then from there, what's the close rate? So, and the close rate once again being of every 10 people you send proposals to, how many end up uh, signing with you? And that could be anywhere from 5% to 100%, right? So once you snap a baseline of the metrics performance, it becomes evident very frequently where you have to lean into. So for example, if uh, you're a $5 million company, let's say, and you're getting 100 MQLs uh, thrown over the fence to you from the marketing team, seems like on first pass, that would be enough. And if your revenue isn't going up from new client acquisition, then it's probably the sales uh, process, the sales close rate. If you're not getting enough leads and your close rate is high, well, then we have to look at what do we have to do to generate more quote unquote at bats, right? So there's different uh, levers there that you can look at in order to drive that close rate. So in summary, start with the metrics. Now, one challenge will be is that salespeople only care about closing the deals. They're not looking for paperwork, uh, annotations in the CRM, reports. They're just working on the deal in front of them for the most part. So there's going to take some conversation with them about why you need to track these things, why they need to use that CRM obsessively, why you need the data that comes from that to help them close more deals and make more money. So I think that the last part of that is even though we need the metrics, we need the buy-in to make sure they're putting in clean data or accurate data so that we can get the true picture of what perspective. All right, great. So we have good data and everyone's on board and we realize we have a 10% close rate. How do we go about uncovering what might be causing that 10% close rate? Okay. So after you've determined that you have the data and it, and it points to the fact that the close rate is too low to be acceptable, now we have to do a little strategic work. And what I mean by that is, in a very simple terms, standing in the shoes of the prospective client and viewing their experience through their eyes. So what do I mean by that? Do you ever go into a retail store and nobody greets you and the signage isn't very clear and it's not quite organized correctly and you're just like, you know what, this isn't for me and you walk out? That's viewing a retail store through the prospect's eyes, right? Now, if we put together a fabulous display and people were very friendly and greeting them and making them feel welcome and warm and asking probing questions about what are you looking for today that I can help you with, in just those simple changes to the retail store experience, now we're going to generate more revenue. Without a doubt, nobody's walking out. I will never forget the one time that my wife and I were looking for a sofa bed when we were in our first apartment because there was no place for guests to stay. We went to beep convertibles, we won't say the name. I walked into the showroom and my wife and I were expecting a salesperson to help us figure out which sofa bed is from us. And there was two people chatting in the back room, didn't even lift a finger to come up and greet us. They kept talking. And I kept saying to my wife, well, I'm sure someone's going to come and greet us soon to help us. And when nobody came, I actually took out my wallet and started waving it. Hopefully they would get the picture that we're there to buy. They just continued their conversation and we walked out. And I always think about that, that if they just would have said, okay, we're playing. as soon as someone comes up, we have three seconds to go from the back of the showroom to the front of the showroom. We greet them in the following sayings. We have these prepared as today's specials that we can offer them. And we'll then continue to guide them through the sales process. Just with that little understanding of how poor the experience was, they could have made some easy changes that don't cost anything, but that could have increased their close rate. So when you're looking at it from a B2B, complex sale, long sales cycle, high ticket average kind of sale, 
you have to stand in the shoes of the prospects and say, well, what emails are they getting? What meetings are we having? What uh, supporting documentation is coming? What are the touch points in between the meetings that we can look at to make the whole experience remarkable and subsequently be better than the competition so you win more than your fair share of deals? Standing in the shoes of the prospect is something so few people do, but if they did, some might be horrified to see what's going on in their own company through the eyes of the prospect. That's the second step after you establish the metrics, Mike. Okay. So in doing so, we find that our clients have a lot of questions when they get a proposal, right? We also find that the contract is very legal and, and that is making them uncomfortable. And we also find that the recommendations presentation is a lot about them and not about their prospects, right? Can you talk about those three examples specifically and how those might help with the close rate if those experiences were architected a little differently? Of course. So let's talk about the last one first, right? That's an easy one. If you are now pitching a client, use the 80-20 rule as we're all familiar with. 80% of the presentation should be about solving the problems, achieving the goals and objectives, uh, selling them the things that they've indicated they want to buy in 80% of the conversation. The remaining 20% should be about the company and how you're going to help them. But the vast majority, the weighting of the pitch meeting has got to be about them and not about you. Hey, Mike, do you have any children? I do. Boys or girls? Boys. How old are they? 24 and 27. If I asked you about your boys, you could talk about them all day, can't you? Of course. Of course. Hey, folks, the second I start talking about my kids, Mike's polite for a minute or two, and then he kind of zones out because now it's not about Mike anymore, and now it's about Eric. That's okay. That's human nature. It's so much easier to talk about ourselves, and that trickles through in business. We talk about our 50,000 square foot facility and the fact that we're family owned and operated and we've been in business 23 years when all the prospect is trying to do is to find out from your company a solution to their problems. And, you know, we talk about it all the time. Instead of your plumbing company having all of your plumbing trucks and your crew out front waving on the homepage of your website, have a bold headline that says we can be at your home in 59 minutes or less. Now, if I have a foot of water in my basement, now all of a sudden I feel comfortable. I don't know about the picture of the people waving that that's going to help me with my problem of flooding. So it's about this kind of like flip-flop in conversation to make it about them and not about you. Now, to attack your first part, you said there's a lot of questions that they get answered when they get into the sales process. Unfortunately, that's a marketing mistake, not a sales problem. And what I mean by that is that if the marketing team had plotted out the entire buyer's journey and let that filter into a buying framework and they plotted out step-by-step step the experience that people would have, then a lot of those questions would have been answered very early in the marketing experience that they would have had those things all sewed up by the time they got to the sales team. And that's a big mistake. So once again, if, the, if, if you're a marketer listening to our live cast today, just go into the sales department and grab a couple of those sales folks and say, hey, what are the 10 most common questions that people ask you in the sales process? And then create a piece of content to answer those questions before they even get to your sales team. Now you could focus on the granular details of the uh, recommendations and the impact on the business as opposed to answering basic questions that really should have been answered by content earlier. This also goes back to our pitch deck, right? If the pitch deck is 80% about them, then you're reflecting back their goals and objectives. You're showing them the recommendations based on those goals and objectives. You're showing them a project plan on how you're going to execute based on what they told you was going on in their organization. It's all about them. And that's where this kind of like thinking through the experience through the eyes of the prospect helps you. So that's the first one and last one. What was the middle one, Mike? No, no, it seemed like it was a long time ago. Yeah, it was a lot of questions asked. The uh, Oh, the legal contract. Oh, that's ridiculously easy, right? So we had that problem, and I know why you're bringing it up. We went to our corporate attorney. We said, we need an airtight contract. Please make us one. 
And then he returned 83 pages of uh, eight point type on a legal contract, which slowed everybody down because now someone's got to review that. So after a couple of years of suffering through this back and forth and having legal and red lines and all that BS, we went back to our same attorney and said, we want to rewrite the contract in layman's terms. We want to put it with our voice and tone, the square two casual but informed neighbor kind of voice and tone that we like. And now our uh, uh, contracts, or they're not even contracts, their agreements are three pages with an attached statement of work. And even those three pages are written in a way that is very conversational. Will we get burned one time because we didn't have a 23 page airtight ironclad contract? Yes. But for the one time in five years that that's gonna bite us in the butt, I would recommend having all those other clients quickly read over your agreement, sign their name and move forward to the next step. That's really good advice. I'm going to tack on to that. And we've talked about this before, but if you're looking at your sales process correctly, then you've mapped out all of the touch points where reps and prospects are coming together, right? The, the emails that they're sending, the meetings that they're having, the documents that they're forwarding, the follow-up associated with it. And if we're really going to hone in on this close rate question, then you have to look at the touch points that are coming in and around someone's uh, about to say yes to you. And we've talked about this before too, this concept of friction. And if there's friction associated with the experience, it's going to impact your close rate. So for instance, if you're working on a set of recommendations for a client and you're working on it on your own without your client or your customer's involvement, and you send that over to them and ask them to review it prior to you having a chance to talk to them about it, there's a pretty good chance that they're gonna have some questions. Why wouldn't they, right? They're reviewing your recommendations for the first time. They may be purchasing something that they've never purchased before. And those questions are going to cause them to be anxious. If you remember very back in the very beginning when we started talking about sales process and sales process improvements, there's this concept of trying to help your prospects feel safe. When they feel safe, they buy. I believe that the safer, the person, the, the company that makes them feel the safest is the one that generally gets the deal. So if they're going to be anxious because they're reviewing your recommendations, they don't understand everything that's in there. Well, there's an opportunity for them to, to not feel safe. An example of a small change that might help prevent them from feeling anxious and improve your close rate is to review that information with them before they get a chance to review it themselves. It could be a, a short conversation prior to the big presentation. I'm not suggesting you don't do the big presentation, but perhaps you send it to your champion or you send it to the decision maker and you review it with them real quickly just so that they can answer any, ask any questions they have and you could answer those questions. And then you still show up and do the big presentation for a, a broader group of people if that's part of your sales process. And you make the presentation more about them and not about you, as Eric said, you know, you've taken one of the touch points and refined it very strategically to better align with the kind of experience that you want them to have. I think that's an example of how you can look at your late stage sales process and find areas that might be potentially hurting you. Uh, you know, maybe you're sending more people to that big presentation than they're bringing. You know, sometimes when a lot of people show up at the room and it's just one or two of them and there's six of you, they might feel a little intimidated. They might feel a little overwhelmed. They might feel like you're, you know, trying to dazzle them with uh, um, the amount of people that you're bringing to the meeting. Like, again, I don't know. Every business is a little different, but it might be something to consider. Perhaps you decide to just match the number of people that are going to be coming from their point. So you have a, a fair amount of people that are going to be talking about this particular recommendation that you have for them. Those Little experiences are really important and they might go a long way to helping you improve the close rate in addition to some of the stuff that Eric said to you. The, the, the big takeaway I think is looking at all of those touch points and making sure that, again, as Eric said, from the prospect's perspective, how does this make me feel? How, how, how is this influencing my decision? The, the, the proposal itself might not be doing you any favors. 
So I have a theory that after the big recommendations meeting is over, they've remembered half of what you said at that meeting. And it's okay, half of what the other competitors said at that meeting too. And when they're sitting down and trying to make a decision, what are they leaning on? They're leaning at your proposal. They've lined up all the proposals in front of them. They're going to now go through them and they're going to try to remember what you said when you presented those proposals. So the simplest proposal might win. The most straightforward might, proposal might win. In your business, the, 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 the fattest proposal might win. I don't know. But you have to look and make sure that the documents that you're providing them are easy for them to understand, answer the questions that they're going to have. Again, they don't want to necessarily come back to you and be like, oh, Eric, uh, you know, I forgot to ask you questions. That might be a little embarrassing. It might look like they weren't listening. So they're going to you know, work their way through that with the documentation you provided them. If your proposal is not written properly, if it doesn't look great, if it doesn't represent your company's quality standards, as I said, if it doesn't answer all their questions, if the other proposals include fancy videos or, or other kinds of gimmicks, like, you know, like you, you got to know that. And you have to go into it with a proposal that is going to make them the most comfortable, whatever that means for your particular industry, your particular products or services. I think it's those elements that need a really close investigation if we're talking about improving close rate. Anything you want to add to that, Eric? No, I think that was well said. Good. Okay. So let's, talk, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about an example. So... I pulled a couple examples. One of them is from a client that we worked with a very long time ago, and I'll explain to you what they do and, and, and what they did to help their close rate. And the other example is a much more current client that we worked with, I believe, last year and still are working with today. Um, and I'll let Eric handle that example because he literally helped them with their sales process. So he's the best guy to answer that particular, uh, talk to that particular case study. The first client is, is called Verilog. Well, Verilog does something really interesting. They record doctor-patient conversations and then share that information with pharmaceutical companies so they can understand what the patient experience is like as it relates to their particular drug. Um, and they do it all anonymously and, and random, so there's no HIPAA information being shared. And the database of conversations is easily searchable based on keywords and, and things that a, a, a pharma product manager would be interested in. And... What they were able to do was show their pharma marketing prospects exactly how powerful their program was by letting them sample bits and pieces of these conversations so that they would be completely comfortable with the information that they were going to be getting. And again, anonymized and randomized, so you know, no specific patient information was getting shared with these people as part of the sales process. But it was a really strategic decision to basically unlock some of this proprietary information, package it up in a way that it was uh, uh, in line with regulations to share it with their prospects and give them that sampling opportunity. They also decided to run smaller pilots. So instead of requiring these product managers to, large, to, to buy large samples of data, they allowed them to buy small samples of data. So these were two uh, concerns that were uncovered in the sales process, concerns that were, were contributing to their close rate. And by understanding the feedback from their prospects, they were able to, you know, prospects were saying, well, how do I know the quality of this information? How do I know I'm going to be able to use this to make decisions around my product? No problem. Let us provide you a couple of samples of real conversations from real doctors about your product so that you can hear what they're talking about and what you can do with these samples. And, you know, no worries. I understand buying all this data is expensive. Let's run a small pilot so you can get started with the data and see if a, a small collection of data points can help you uh, improve the way the doctors understand the product or the way the doctors are presenting the product to customers, uh, to patients. You know, again, two important issues that were uncovered by understanding the sales process, some adjustments that were made to the way the sales reps worked with their prospects and it drove multi-million dollar contracts. Now, these were very big contracts with very large pharma companies. So they could afford to be a little more supportive in the sales process and share a little bit of this information because at stake were very large contracts. And again, this unlocked a huge amount of opportunity. Wow. They were able to drive their close rate, which wasn't 10. It was more like 30% up into the 40, 50%. And again, for these guys, it was significant. So again, understanding prospects, understanding their concerns and changing sales process to meet those prospects concerns worked to improve their close rate.
Eric, you want to talk a little bit about Teal and Team? Sure. About their, their podcast series? Uh, sure. And what you did to help them with their close rate. Yeah. So I'll give you two nuggets with Teal and Team. By the way, check out their website. Teal and Team is just the most interesting company. Architecture, interior design, and procurement. And they only work on projects that have big community spaces like student unions or multifamily housing or like a golf club, uh, you know, clubhouse where, where, big where big groups of people go to gather. They design those. So the first thing is they had no sales process. And they came to us and they said, yeah, I guess when someone reaches out to us, we kind of figure it out on a one-off basis. Well, you can't scale a company, number one, that way. But number two is you can't have a high close rate, the topic of today's conversation, unless you have a remarkable sales experience. So we really sat down and developed a basic framework for them to take prospects from the first time they reached out to the company all the way through a new project. And uh, it was a five-step process. And then we set up their CRM to match each stage of the sales process so that we could start to keep track of it and get the metrics that we talked about earlier. So that was number one. Number two was as part of that sales process, because it was new and different, we created a little uh, piece of content that was attached to the first email that went out. Hey, Mike, thanks for reaching out to Teal and team. We're excited to talk with you about your new project. Just to give you a little bit of information, here's how our sales process works. Step one, step two, step three, step four. That's a nice little touch because now people know exactly what to expect and the timeline is there. Everybody wants their proposal yesterday, right? But we can't give you a proposal unless we take you through the steps to really diagnose your issue and then design a plan that's specific for you. So in the case of Teal and Team, that setting the expectation that typically a project will take a week or so to define and uh, ask questions and uh, uh, finally put it down into a project plan, price it out and present it. So that was good. And people started to engage more because they knew what to expect. Now, the interesting thing about Teal and Team is that they have a very visual product, right? They do architecture and interior design, things that are really interesting to look at. So what we did is we looked at the buyer's journey as they started to come through the sales process. And in between the meetings and the touch points, we sent little pieces of content, a video here, a diagram there, a before and after picture there. And those little touches were meant to grease the sales wheels, make the prospect feel more comfortable, AKA safe, so that they slip through the sales process very easily. So what happened was Teal and team that had no idea about what their metrics were ended up landing on a pretty much like a 33%, one out of every three close rate, which to them was a bonanza because they were under 10% in the beginning before we set up this process. Now, I haven't checked in with them in a couple of months because the process is running, but I bet if I checked in now, now that we've introduced them to the power of having a really good sales experience, I bet you they've added in one or two things based on their um, uh, reading of the tea leaves or uh, taking feedback from what's going on in the sales process and making it even better, which by the way, is a tip for you is that as the data comes in and as the feedback comes in on the sales process, you can always make changes. You can always upgrade and tweak and fix things to make it even more remarkable. Uh, the cool thing about Teal and team is that they wanted to get in front of a very specific group. So rather than lean into account-based marketing and do an ABM campaign with cold emails and reaching out to people on LinkedIn, we went a different route, which is to create a podcast. And every one of their prospects was invited to come talk about their project on the podcast so the Teal and team could give their uh, ideas and uh, apply creativity to the challenges and kind of talk through a very interesting conversation around um, common space uh, architecture and design. Now, the beautiful thing or the brilliant thing about this is that if they're doing a podcast a week and you invite one prospective client each week to sit in and talk, one, the prospect feels so flattered because they were asked to be on a radio show, quote unquote. Two, the owners of the company being hosts of the podcast get to meet these prospects face to face. And they're obviously a good uh, introduction to what Teal and Team does. But the podcast itself gives many reasons to interact with these prospective clients. We have to schedule it. We have to put together an agenda or an itinerary of what the show is going to be. We have to follow up with a recording. We have to ask their feedback if they enjoyed the experience. So even though their prospects were literally warmly engaged from day one because they led with, let me help you by getting your story out on a podcast, not let me sell you an interior design project. So the podcast is working great as a great channel for uh, uh, narrowly focusing on the exact accounts that Teal and Team wants to work with.
Did I explain that well, Mike? Does any yeah, you did. And just to kind of help some people connect the dots here, they have an, uh, a very relationship-oriented business. Uh, and a lot of people do, right? A lot, of, a lot of prospects we talk to talk about, well, you know, it's who you know, and I have to build a relationship with them. And this is, pro this is probably a pretty common sales song. You know, it, it's all about the relationship. We have a, it's a relationship sale, I hear a lot of people say. And I think in this case, it's actually true. So, you know, they're designing interiors. The people that own these properties, uh, they might have an existing relationship with the designer that they've worked with. They might have friends who are designers that they've worked with. You know, it's very difficult to break into that if you're an outsider. Their traditional sales outreach was bumping into that specific thing. I'm good. We have someone. We don't need you. We're not ready for you yet. You know, the kind of things that people use to put up obstacles to, to push people off that they don't really want to talk to. But when you shift that conversation to, would you like to be on our podcast? Well, there aren't too many people that say no to that. I have to be honest with you. It's quite flattering to be invited to be on a podcast. And, you know, they got the opportunity to talk about their community or their project. Um, and it really helped the, the two women who run this, this design firm start to build that relationship with people who were maybe a little bit, uh, 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 what do you call it, deflecting, you know, uh, uh, not open wary. yet, to, wary of, of having someone who's trying to pitch them design services when they feel like they, they might be in good shape. You know, the podcast if they can talk to someone about their project for an hour, all kinds of things could be uncovered. Challenges that they're having, design elements that they're interested in. It really gave them an opportunity to talk up their, their craft and their capabilities and things that they've done in the past to the point where when the session was over, not only did they have a great piece of content, but they had a new friend. They had someone that they were able to talk in a real kind of friendly and, and casual way about their particular project. And it worked beautifully. Uh, last time I talked to them, they were converting every single one of their podcast guests into at least a, an opportunity to continue the conversation and present services to them and, and get to know them a little bit better. I'm not saying they were going to close the project. And some of these projects have very long runways. They may not actually be ready for them for six months or longer, but it really got them introduced to a bunch of new people that they would not have been introduced before. And the fact that they were able to establish a, a personal relationship and make those people feel safe on the podcast did wonders for, for their close rate, in addition to the uh, advice and, and the assistance that Eric gave them as well. So again, it was a slightly different perspective on how to form a relationship with a prospect in the sales process that worked really nicely for them. And I think there's a tidbit there for a lot of people who have relationship-based sales uh, relation, uh, businesses that they're trying to drive um, with new prospects. Good, Eric. Let's shift gears and do some questions. So I did get a bunch of questions uh, for today's show. This is from Barry in Chicago. This was a pretty hot topic. I'll let the questions keep it on this one. Yeah, this is Barry from Chicago. So I'll let you handle this. What are some practical steps we could install for helping the reps slow down the push to sign? And he put those in parentheses. So I'm assuming that's like the hard sell so that they can earn the prospect's trust first. So how do you go about earning the prospect's trust instead of trying to push them to sign? Yeah. So one thing that I think is important is setting the upfront contract. That's not our concept. That's from Sandler sales uh, training or Sandler sales Institute. I forget, but everybody knows Sandler. It's been around forever. And what they like to do is set what's called an upfront contract, right? Hey, um, thanks so much for the opportunity. Let's set a couple of ground rules before we dive into it. If at any time during this, uh, either party uh, decides that it's not a good fit, it's okay to raise your hand and, and opt out. In that one instance, you're establishing trust because people um, uh, feel the opportunity to be uh, open a little bit more because the salesperson put them at ease. So we're going to have a conversation. We're going to talk about things. And if it's not a fit, it's okay. I'm not going to try to sell you anything. We're going to work to, and if you're listening, please write down, co-create the final solution. So what happens is when people feel uh, uh, uncomfortable in the sales process, uh, because of the hard sell, it's not because of the hard sell. 
it's because that the salesperson didn't take them through a journey that makes it obvious that they're supposed to sign. And this is a big problem because, you know, the, the uh, intense follow-up by a salesperson who they can't get a signature, they don't realize that it's not for lack of follow-up. It's because they didn't do a good job of co-creating the solution so that the deal closes itself. So let's give an example here. If I said to you, Mike, I'm very, very disappointed that I don't get enough leads through my website. And then I immediately push a proposal in front of you that says more leads from your website, guaranteed. Without giving you the background, the details, the how, the why of how we're going to do that. Would you sign that agreement? Probably not. Of course. And if I followed up in an hour and said, when was the agreement coming back? And then the next morning, why haven't you sent the agreement back? And then uh, some BS about it's the end of the month and I got to hit my quota, please send back your agreement. Now I'm actually trying to get, uh, have the salesperson miss their quota because they're so annoying. But yet so many times in the square two process and don't get us wrong, right? It's, it's an evolving thing that now we're feeling great about, but five years ago, we probably wouldn't have the same feelings. We really worked hard to make that co-creation a thing that came alive in our sales process. Lots of questions, going deep, slowing down and finding out more information if it's going to be a critical part of the recommendation, getting the stakeholders to the table who make the decisions. All of these things make it for a very rich, collaborative conversation and not one person trying to sell something to the other person. Um, very simple example. I didn't think that one of the deals we pitched last week was going to come through, but there's always a hope until they say no, right? If, if, you know, if someone doesn't say no, we just keep going. So when I reached out today and I said, eh, it's going to take us a week to figure it out and do our strategic planning today, which is Wednesday, I sent him an email that says, hey, maybe we can chat next week. I could answer any questions, address concerns you might have, and we could talk about next steps together. In five minutes, the buyer emailed back, we don't have any questions. Please send an agreement. Thanks. We're excited to get started. Now, while I was pleased that we got that deal, when I, upon reflection, it was because I guess we did everything we were supposed to do in the sales process that when we asked for the signature, it, it came. And this is a problem because the hard work is not follow up, sign the agreement, sign the agreement. The hard work is in doing the prep leading up to you sign this agreement. Also, I don't send agreements now unless someone specifically asks me to send them an agreement. I don't say, here's an agreement. You can review it and sign it if you like. I just say, are you ready for an agreement yet? Or maybe you still have questions or any concerns or you're worried about something. Let's get it all out on the table. And then if there's any tweaks to what we agreed to, we can memorialize it in a simple agreement. There's a big difference in what I just said with, uh, yeah, I'm going to shoot you over an agreement and sign it and then follow up 18 times in three hours. And I think that that, Mike, is where a lot of salespeople are just missing the boat. You know, it's not about getting the signature. It's about getting a long-term strategic partner to join your company. Yeah, I think there's a lot of good ideas in there. Um, a couple that I could expound on. First of all, if you want to improve your close rate, stop sending proposals and contracts until the prospect is ready for them and has asked for them. I think a lot of salespeople are, view the end of the journey as the submission of the proposal, not getting the final deal done. And what I mean by that is prospects reach out to you. Hey, I'm interested in your service. Oh, no problem. Let me get your proposal. Well, wait a minute. You haven't asked me anything about my business yet. How do you know what to include? In the Oh, no, no, I got it. Like, and they're basically sending kind of a standard proposal out to, you know, everybody. That's really the opposite of what you want to be doing. You know, I would suggest you wait as long as you possibly can to Eric's point, to the point where you really have spent enough time with them that they are now comfortable and they are saying to you, I would like to see your final proposal. You know, at that point, you've probably done everything you possibly can to get them ready for that, including to Eric's point, co-creating the recommendations with them, answering all their questions, being patient and explaining to them the things that they don't know about your industry, your products or services. You know, at that point, when they're asking for it, then it's time to give it to them, as opposed to maybe 
let's rush to get them the proposal because, you know, I have to submit 20 proposals a month to get, you know, two clients, you know, that should be the opposite of the way it, it Wait, works. Stop right there, Mike. That sentence you just said is deadly, right? I must send out 20 proposals to get two clients. Right. What if you send five proposals right. and you got three clients, right? right? Because you slowed down or you qualified out the ones that aren't going to really sign. So right. we'll go down that road later. Yeah, absolutely. The other metaphor that I just love, which we talk a lot about with salespeople, and I think it applies here too, is, and this actually is a question that's coming up, so we'll try to address this now, like, what is your advice to help us move our sales culture from sell, 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 to help and guide? And I think a really good sales culture in 2022 should be about guidance. And, and if you want to think about the metaphor that I like to share, it's the Sherpa that's going to help you get to the top of Mount Everest, right? Your goal is to get to the top of Mount Everest. Your, your goal is to help this company achieve whatever objectives they've shared with you. You know, in our case, it's, it's grow revenue or, or get more leads or, or close more new customers. Whatever your prospect's goals are, you have to discuss it with them. And then your role as a salesperson is not to convince them to buy what you're selling, but it's to help guide them towards their goals. Just like the Sherpa that's helping you get to the top of the mountain would say, no, 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 we don't go that way in June. It's, it's melty and too dangerous. We go this way in June. No, you're taking too much stuff with you. Let's like lighten up your pack so you can get to the top. Um, you know, the weather's looking bad. We, we should camp here instead of pushing through. Those are all guidance. It's all guidance to help the, the, the party that's going up the mountain get there safely and get there so that they can achieve their goal of, of reaching the top of the mountain. It's the same thing here. You should be guiding them. You know, like, oh, you seem to have a lot of questions about this particular topic. Let me send you some information to help educate you, right? It may be about your product or service. It may just be about the industry in general, right? But they're, they need that to feel comfortable. Um, they may be looking at a couple of your competitors. You know, you don't, you don't badmouth them, but you help them understand what some of the differences might be between you and some of their competitors so they can make a good decision. It's all about understanding where they need that guidance and applying that guidance so they, in the end, can make the safe and, and comfortable decision for them and their business, and you've guided them along the way. If you find someone who's not going to be a good listener, just like if I was a Sherpa and you wanted to go up to the mountain, you were like, Mike, I'm taking this stuff up with me. I don't care what you say. Mike, I'm not, you know, I want to go this way. I don't care what you say. The first thing the shepherd would say is, well, I'm not the right guide for you because if you die up there, I don't want to be responsible for you. You really should find a different guide to help you get up to the top of the mountain. It's the same thing with you. When prospects say to Eric, I want a proposal. I don't care about these questions you're asking me. Eric says, look, I can't help you if you're not going to answer my questions. I won't be giving you the right advice. I won't be giving you the kind of recommendations you need to get to the goals you told me that you had for your business. And it's the same, it's the same way here. Your sales culture has to shift from trying to convince them to trying to help and guide them. Anything you want to add? Yeah, the Sherpa example is so perfect, right? Because it, it, it's like, by definition, the person is there to help you, right? No, the Sherpa is not trying to eat your lunch. The Sherpa is not trying to steal your gear. The Sherpa is not trying to break any world records. The Sherpa, number one responsibility is to keep you safe. And in sales, if we help people feel safe, then they will join us on the adventure. When they feel at least a little unsafe, a little bit of friction, the red flag goes up, we slam on the brakes and we say, well, maybe we should rethink this purchase. And that's exactly what salespeople should wanna to try to avoid. Yeah, it's a good one, good one. All right, so I got a question from Jane in LA. She wants to know, should there be some formal gates that reps have to get through in order to move a deal to proposal stage? So that's a really good question one that I'm sure you have some interesting insight into, what would be like a, like a gate? I mean, we kind of talked about one, like I'd like a proposal. I mean, I guess that would be one gate. Someone's ready and asking for the formal proposal, but what other, what other gates might the rep have to get through if we want to stop spraying and praying yeah, and start strategically introducing the proposal at the right time when the prospect's ready? Yeah, it's a good question, but I'm not sure that the gates 
uh, in that question are referring to the prospect, but the sales manager, okay? And if I have a bunch of uh, salespeople that are spraying and, and praying, I think the gates are maybe to let them, uh, to manage them. And let me explain what I mean. If I don't write up my notes from that original meeting and um, subsequently score that prospect on an agreed upon scale of whether or not they're worth moving forward, that would be my first gate as a sales manager to my team. Give me the story of this prospect and then show me how you rated them, why they qualified to move forward. If I just do that, I put enough gates in front of my salespeople that fewer unqualified prospects will get through. And I think on a past episode, Mike, didn't we talk about pain, power, fit? You know, I was going to mention that we might have, but we could probably talk about it again. Very, you remember the name of the person who invented it? I can't. Uh, John Bowie. Right. So John Bowie, a, an old colleague of Mike's, invented this pain, power, fit. Five points for each. Five points for pain rating, five points for power rating, five points for fit. Uh, the pain is how likely are they to hire us based upon solving their problem? The fit is, is this the kind of work that we do and do really well? And then we'll get referrals from. And the power is, am I speaking to the person who's going to sign the check, quote unquote? If I give each one of them a one through five rating and my total score is less than 10, they're probably not ready to enter into the sales process. If they're at 10 or above, they're two thirds of the way there. And the responsibility of the salesperson is to take them to a 15, which is actually occurs when they sign on the dotted line. So if I said, please rate them based on this, let's say relatively subjective scale, salespeople will start to weed out the sevens and the fives and the eight and a halves in favor of finding the 11s and 12s that'll have a much easier time closing. So the first gate would be, let's have some kind of qualification system. The second gate would be, here's our process that you must follow. And I'm going to say within 80%, because Mike, there's literally no reason to take all the personality out of the sales uh, prospect. Some people behave this way. Some people behave that way. Everybody finds what they feel comfortable with and find success with. But if we're all following the general process, we can start to quantify that. So a gate might be, um, did you ask about their budget and timeline? Is their budget and timeline something that fits what we want to do? If the answer is no, don't send them a proposal, right? Because then you're going to have a, a chasm between what you charge, 50000 and their budget, which is 5000 There's no reason to do that. So I would think that if we had a sales process that had these little checkpoints along the way, those would be gates per that question that maybe would make it a little bit more challenging to get through. But I think at the end of the day, if the sales manager put up those gates in very short order, the sales team would learn these are the kinds of people I should spend my time with. Now, if the salesperson says, I need more opportunities, the sales manager has to say, no, you need better opportunities or you need a strategy to move someone who's a nine on the pain power fit to a 14. Let's work on that. Because if they're a nine and they just missed it, maybe it's worth a little bit of effort, right? But those salespeople that are reaching, 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 and then their close rate is abysmal because of that. To use your metrics a little earlier, Mike, if I'm closing two out of every 20, because I know I need 20 proposals, I need 20 uh, uh, proposals sent out so I can get two deals, that's a 10% close rate. Also, that took my entire 50-hour week. If I were able to weed out five of those 20, and then I could take the one hour each I was spending on those this week and put five more hours into time for moving people from a nine to a 14. I think that's time spent really wisely, but I can never have that ability unless I weed out some of those sketchy uh, prospects on the front end. By the way, the calculation of close rate, which we talked about two episodes ago, is also important, right? I want to know from the time I send the proposal to the time I get a deal, what the close rate is, not from the time that someone downloaded my white paper on the website to close. That does not help the sales team understand the activity that's going on in the latter journey of the sales experience. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, and I agree completely. You could absolutely apply a quantitative score to your opportunities and say, if it's not a 12, 13 or above, it's not ready for a proposal. If you didn't want to apply something as quantitative as that, you simply could apply some of the same um, criteria that 
is behind the scoring model you talked about. Like, for instance, I think one of the biggest reasons proposals don't close is because sales reps are not talking to the right people. So, well, they're not can, talking to the people that make the decision. Correct. Yeah, right. Yes, we yeah. call them power, but right. They're not yeah. talking to the people that ultimately are going to sign that agreement. So, you know, I might set up a gate for the reps that say, you are not to submit a proposal until you know who's going to be signing the agreement and you've had an opportunity to talk to that person. Now, I, Mike, I literally made that mistake a week ago. Remember? I thought right. I was talking to the general manager of a construction company who wanted a big inbound project. And then when it came down to the end and we went through the whole thing, I was like, great. You know, uh, I, I think we're ready to talk about working together. And he said, well, no, I got to bring Joey in. So right. I'm like, who the heck is Joey? Oh, right. Joey's the owner. Joey just asked me to go out and find these companies. I'm like, boom, my mistake. Because if I would have said, tell me everybody who's going to be involved in this decision-making process, Joey would have come up two weeks prior. And I would have said, if Joey's not in on the recommendations meeting, uh, I'm sorry, we can't move forward. Now, right. that seems a little gutsy to do that, but I'm losing that deal anyway, because Joey's signing the check and he doesn't even know me. Right. Yeah, it's a really good example. And there's lots of ways to kind of fart that out, because unfortunately, People don't always want to share like the true nature of their decision-making process. So when you say, well, who's making this decision, they might say I am, and they're honest in their response to you. They think they are going to be making the recommendation to their boss. And that is, they are making the decision, but in reality, they're not making the decision. So we have a couple tricks that we use, right? Like, Oh, who's actually going to be signing the agreement? Oh, that would be the CEO. Oh, okay. Well, I guess we really need to talk to the CEO. Uh, how do you guys make decisions about what agencies to hire? Oh, well, we typically vet them all. I make a, a recommendation, but then I have to present it to the board. Like we hear that sometimes too, right? Well, that really means the board makes the decision because you know when you take that recommendation to the board, someone on the board is going to know someone, have an existing relationship, and they're going to say, well, have you talked to this company? Let me introduce you to them. Go get two more examples of similar services. So you have to ask the right questions. This is where pain power fit comes in, but it's a real skill for sales reps to ask the right questions at the right time. And, and Eric, you said ballsy, but I really, it just takes, I think, some perseverance to continue to question things that don't appear to be, you know, completely vetted out when you're getting answers from people, right? Like, oh, well, you know, it's, it, I have to talk to a couple other people. Oh, well, who are the people? And, and, and how are they going to, how do you guys typically make decisions like this? When are you going to make the decision? You know, you know, when I'm in, a, in calls with you, sometimes I ask, well, well, can you help us understand how big a priority this is for your company? Like, is it an A priority or a B priority or a C priority? If they say it's a C priority, I'm saying, well, call me back when it's an A priority, because if, you know, if it's not at the top of your list, then you're not going to be responding to our proposal expeditiously. This isn't something that you really have acute pain on today. And I would love to help you make a good decision, but you know, let me know now if this is something that you're looking at to do six months from now, as opposed to in the next six days, because it seemed like initially you, this was something that you wanted to do very quickly. So all of those could be examples of gates that the reps have to be clear on in order to submit the proposal. There has to be acute pain. This has to be their top priority. You have to be talking to the people that are going to sign the contract or can say yes without needing additional approvals. You know, those might be two examples of gates, or you can use different vocabulary, information that you have to have in order to submit that proposal. You know, there's really no point in submitting a proposal that they're going to sit on for six months. Like when they get a little closer to being ready to do it, you're happy to help them come back and spend your time when, when they're a little more um, serious about moving forward. Again, maybe not so easy to maneuver, but I think if you're a good sales rep, you can handle those questions and manage those situations. Well, I, I also think that the sales guide has to have the competence that if the prospect placed themselves in their they will build a solution based upon their goals and objectives and it'll all work out. 
I think a lot of times salespeople don't have that personal confidence and they just said, I'm going to sign it and throw it over the fence to operations and hope. It's really not the way. When you position yourself as the authority in whatever you're selling and you have the guts to say, well, look, if you're planning on doing this in six months, like let's just talk in five months, right? There's no reason to go through that process now. Um, I've had several scenarios where it came down to the end and they were like, listen, we decided to push this project off a quarter or two. You know whose fault that is, Mike? My fault, the salesperson. Because if I didn't do my proper job probing, then that's on me that I wasted all that time and energy. Now, if salespeople really want to hone their craft and get to that 80% close rate, which is the topic of today's conversation, they have to be willing to try a few new things, a few new techniques to reach out there. You know what you said, Mike, is... What is your decision-making process prospect? Well, that's gutsy. Salespeople don't want to say that. That's confrontational. But really, if you are a professional and you know that this is the solution to their problem and you want to know how you can fit it in, like, for heaven's sake, we have other clients that we have to work with too. Like, it's not just about you. I'm currently in a situation where the uh, prospective client said, well, I see that you're out about a month with taking on new clients. Can we do it faster? So I said, well, how fast would be fast? Because we typically need a week or two to prep. They said, we want to start on February 1st. Today, by the way, for uh, memorialization, it's January 27th. So I said, okay, well, this is a really good type of project for us. Let me go to my director of client services and see if we can move some things around and give them what they want. And you know what? She's a wonderful, wonderful leader. She asked a few people to move things aside so we could work it out. I then emailed them back in an hour. Hey, we moved everything around for you. The only thing I need in consideration is you got to sign the agreement by tomorrow so that we can start to plan for a Tuesday meeting. It's now Wednesday, for heaven's sakes. Crickets. Didn't even get back to me. Whose fault is that, Mike? Mine. Yours. I should have said, we don't rush things. We're strategic partners. This is how we work. I'm sorry if it's not a good fit. Maybe I could refer you to another firm. But I reached a little bit, right? And I went outside the, 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 the guardrails of our, our process a little bit. And then I, I wasted Kristen's time and I used capital on my team members that moved things around that were irritated because things were running smoothly and they had to upset the apple cart. All of that is the salesperson's fault, AKA Eric. Yeah, that's a really good point to wrap up um, and a good takeaway if you're really looking to drive your close rate you have to stick to your process like every time we evaluate deals that we lost most of the time it's because we deviated from the process that we know no works and the clients that we take on that are successful are the ones that went through the process and answered our questions and were honest with us and responded promptly and understood what they were getting into so it proves itself over and over again so awesome way to cap today's session Really appreciate everybody joining us next. We're going to be off next week. Eric and I are taking a much needed vacation. So we will be off next week. We will be back on February 9th with episode 21. What's wrong with revenue? Companies still consider marketing and sales two separate departments. And as we constantly try to reflect the desire of our audiences, we're going to have a guest. Our guest is Joel Caparella. He's the VP of Revenue Marketing at Workiva. He has extensive sales and marketing experience in, in bringing sales and marketing teams together to drive revenue. His title says it all, VP of Revenue Marketing, so he's obviously responsible for revenue. Joel will be on the show with Eric and me, and we'll talk to him about his view of the world and how he gets his team focused and driving towards um, making sure that their company hits their revenue numbers. So thanks, everybody, for joining us. Check out the show on YouTube. It'll be posted tomorrow. Check out the show on our website. It'll be posted tomorrow at the bottom of the website. There's a link to what's wrong with revenue. You can take a look at the show there. You can subscribe to the show. You can submit questions. All of our questions come through that page. If you have questions that you want us to deal with in upcoming shows, just submit them and we will handle them. Uh, check us out on all of the uh, various podcast platforms. If you're into audio instead of video, we're so grateful to have you guys as our audiences. Eric and I love doing the show. We will equally... Um, miss you guys next week as we're trying to enjoy a little bit of time off, but we'll be back with you guys on February 9th with a really good show with our guest, Joel Caparello. So thanks everybody. Have a really great day and we'll talk to you in two weeks. Bye-bye.